With that, good morning, and welcome to Grace Bible Church. And, uh, you know, as we finish this uh, Christmas season out, I just want to say maybe one last time, Merry Christmas to you all. Uh, I'm thankful that you are here with us as we have celebrated the Lord's birth over the last couple of weeks. I know it's interesting because I know that there's controversy in the church concerning Christmas, but this this time of year should take a special significance for us because Christmas is unique in that, and I've said this before, in that most people have a recognition that we are celebrating the birth of Christ. You know, historically, we hear many of the same hymns that we sang. I mean, we just sang one that's very familiar this morning. We, the, the hymns that we sing in church, we hear them as we walk around in, you know, the department store, in the mall, or in, or as we watch a Christmas parade. I know that, that, you know, that's going away to a certain degree. And, and, and I know that the, the, this, this culture is becoming more and more secular in nature, but Christmas still gives us a unique opportunity to share our faith. You know, I, it's interesting. It's interesting because I was thinking about this this morning as I was getting ready to come here. I was thinking about how we learn by repetition. And so every year we get the opportunity to focus on the first Advent. You know, we, get to, we get an opportunity to think through it and, and really think through what we believe about it and, and you know, our understanding. And so over and over, every year it comes back. The same with, with you know, the, the Resurrection Day or Easter that some people call it. And so, so I think that it's important. It's important that we have these, these traditions, but I want to make sure that our traditions are informed by what? By Scripture. By Scripture. Not just that we just kind of rotely think about, think about the traditions and we get off track and we're no longer in, in, you know, there with the Scriptures. So, so I believe that this time gives us an opportunity to, to emphasize the idea of his birth, but, but in, especially in terms of the Advent, the first Advent. You see, he came the first time as a baby and he came to go to the cross. He came to redeem his people, but he'll come again, right? He'll come again, and the next time he's going to come in judgment. And this time of year gives us as a church the uni- a unique time to focus on the beauty and the significance of that, and the beauty and the significance of the incarnation. And during our Christmas Eve service, I was overwhelmed by the depth of the truth that I was trying to convey in just a few minutes, if you were here. I think J.I. Packer shares my angst when he says the incarnation itself is an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. I thought that was an interesting quote. With that, let's get started this morning. Let me pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Praise you that we could be here today and as we again close out this time of year, Looking again this morning at the birth story of Christ, Father, may we just be struck anew by the significance of this, the significance that we really can't fully comprehend. Lord, we pray that we would just work to just see what we need to be able to understand about it and that we would proclaim not just his birth, but that we would proclaim his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, but we'd also proclaim his second coming, that he will come, Lord, in judgment. 
that he will come to judge the world. Father, we thank you and praise you for this morning in Christ's name. Amen. In the 1954 movie, White Christmas, it is a, it is a feel-good story that follows two World War II soldiers who decide to become a musical act in the years after the war. And in doing so, they find the love of their lives and help restore the life of, an old, of their old army general. Now, I've, I admit that I have not actually seen the story. I watched or the movie. I've actually once read about it on Wikipedia, but I, that's okay. So they, they restore the life of, a, of, a, of an old army general. He had been re, relieved of his duties in the army and rejected. He had also used his life savings to purchase an, an old hotel that was in danger of going under. Uh, the movie represents the height of the American culture after World War II. We had won the war, and we felt really good about it. But considering this was a story about Christmas, something was profoundly missing. When we focus on feel-good stories like Santa and his sleigh of presents or doing good and living happily ever after, we rob Christmas of its true glory. Maybe I could put it this way. Consider this story about a boy named Lindsay. His father, a distant and severe man, worked him especially hard during the holidays. Lindsay was given extra chores at the family ranch, and his old man whipped him if he didn't work hard enough. Lindsay fear, lived in fear of these beatings, which often drew blood. But even worse were the verbal floggings, the names, the insults, and the belittle, belittling put-downs. They seemed especially harsh at Christmas. The memory stayed with Lindsay all his life, tormenting him like demons every December. One friend said, Lindsay was never able to find happiness. He had become a hard-drinking partier who went from woman to woman and couldn't find peace or success. Finally, at the age of 51, he angrily watched Bing Crosby's White Christmas one last time. Then he put a gun to his head and a bullet through his brain. I hated Christmas because of Pop, and I always will, he said. It brings back the pain and fear I suffered as a child. If I ever do myself in, it will be at Christmas time. That will show the world what I think of Bing Crosby's White Christmas. Ironically and sadly, Lindsay was Bing's son, Lindsay Crosby. Now, this story is a parable of what happens, I believe, when we gut Christmas of its true glory. If only Lindsay had really understood that Jesus Christ was born so that our sins would, though they are scarlet, shall be white as snow. In other words, without Christ, without Jesus to wash us whiter than snow, there can never be a genuinely white Christmas. Isaiah 1.18 Isaiah says, come now and let us reason together. Actually, this is the Lord. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. The beauty of Christmas, the glory of Christmas, is that God came to be with us. In the words of Isaiah the prophet, in Isaiah 7:14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus became one of us. God became man. Now this is not, 
This is not subtraction. This is addition. Chris LaDuc, a fellow pastor and friend from seminary, puts it this way. He put this on his Facebook page just this past week. And I really, I really liked it because I think he's right. That baby in the manger gave up neither power nor prerogative, end quote. Now that brings up the question. He is fully God and fully man. He was never less than fully God. Get that and understand it. He was never less than fully God and perfect man. But that brings up the question of what we call the kenosis or the emptying. According to my theology professor, James Mook, he says this, and I thought it was very helpful. He says in Jesus' first advent, when he came as a baby, he chose not to externally manifest his perfections in the human realm with the manifestation of his humanity. There's an exception. Unless the Father willed and the Holy Spirit led otherwise, end quote. In other words, his perfections, his, his godly attributes, or God, the, the attributes that make him God, were always available to him at the will of the Father and the leading of the Holy Spirit. That is important for us to understand. Therefore, in his perfect humanity, in his perfect humanity, Jesus could fully sympathize with our weaknesses. Just listen to Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. You see, he never, he never didn't have his prerogatives of God as God. But he didn't use them. He didn't, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't consider it robbery. He didn't consider it to be wrong that he would have them. But ultimately, he didn't use them unless the Father willed and the Holy Spirit led. Now that babe in the manger never at any point became less than God. He was full, perfect humanity and fully God. Therefore, he became, because of that, he became the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Now, last week, we began to look at Luke 2, 8 through 14, where Luke records seven, I've, I've called them seven, humble yet heavenly circumstances surrounding the birth of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. Now, we looked at the first four last week, and we'll finish the final four today. Now, before we jump back into this outline, I, let me remind you that last week we established that Luke wrote the gospel that goes by his name along with Acts. They were both addressed to a man named Theophilus. Together, Luke intended them to record the events surrounding Jesus' birth all the way to Paul's imprisonment in Rome. In Luke 1, he says, Luke 1.1, 1, 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down, by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Then he goes on to say, so that you may, have, may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. In Acts 1, 1, and 2, he says, The first count I composed, which he's talking about Luke, the gospel, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach 
until the day that when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, in general, I would argue that Luke invested, investigated everything carefully from the beginning. And he recorded everything that happened in meticulous fashion. Now, for an example of Luke's detailed writing, take some time. I, we don't have time now, but take some time to read through Acts 27. I, 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 take the, I tell you that because Acts 27 is so meticulous in its recording of Paul's shipwreck on the island of Malta. I mean, he's, it's incredible the detail that he gives. I mean, that's the personality of Luke coming through as he's, as he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, let's read the account in Luke 2. We started looking at this yesterday, or last time, 2, 1 through 7. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph, Joseph also went up to Galilee from the city of Naz Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, here in Luke 2, 1-7, the, the Luke records the Lord's birth in all its simplicity. He gives this incredible account, as we said last week, with an economy of words that leaves us only to consider the enormity of the event. Of the event. His birth, Luke's birth announcement actually defies human reasoning. If left to man... We would multiply our words, would we not? We would add to the event to make it seem more important. In doing so, we would use words and descriptions to impress man. If left to man, Jesus would have been born in a castle, not in a wherever it stable, cave, whatever it was exactly. He, he, he would have been laid in a golden crib, not in a wooden manger. He would have been attended by many servants, not born in the presence of his parents, along with some common animals that could be found. In that area, in that whatever that was again, and I'll, I'll explain more of that later. He would have been given an immaculate room, not in the muck of, of society. You get the picture, right? Every detail of this account resists human reason. The, the account zigs at every point we would zag, if you will. The truth continues as we consider the rest of the story. As I said last week, we are, as I said earlier, we will, we began to look at Luke 2, 8 through 14, where Luke records seven heaven, humble but heavenly circumstances surrounding the birth of our Lord Jesus. Look back at your text in Luke 2, 8. Let me read through 14. Luke records, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. 
You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And did I? And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, last week in verse 8, we saw the first humble or heavenly circumstance surrounding our Savior's birth. So let's review very, very quickly. Look at verse 8. It says, In the same region, some shepherds stay, there were some shepherds staying out in the field. Now Luke here highlights a group of people who were normally in the shadows. Uh, they lived on the fringes of society. These men would have been the last picked for angel-watching duty. They were considered shady individuals by many in the society. And yet, these shepherds were the ones that God chose to announce the birth of His Son. Now, we don't want to elevate these men in any way, but that's precisely the point. You see, God has regard for the lowly and the outcast of our society, of, of human society. We see this pattern throughout, we saw this last week, throughout Jesus' ministry. You see, God could have sent the angel to the elite. He could have had him appear to the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. Many of these men lived close to the temple in Jerusalem and had comfortable houses with their private baths. I've actually been there and seen uh, these, this community with, that they lived in. It's, a, it's something that's been preserved. And you can see the, the baths. You can see the opulence these people lived in. But they, that the angel was not sent by God to these people, but to filthy shepherds who lived in the countryside with their sheep. Now, amazingly, these shepherds probably raised animals for sacrifice at the temple. But they, and they would have never expected the, the angel's message. The one true sacrifice had come. The perfect sacrifice had come. Now look at verse 9, where we saw the second heavenly or humble circumstance surrounding our Lord's birth, the heavenly courier. Look at verse 9. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. The text simply says that it was an angel of the Lord that stood before them. Now, we can't be certain which angel this is, but I, I lean toward it being Gabriel because of the connection back to Luke 1. But the main thing I want us to understand is that this would have been completely out of the ordinary. Now, angels appear to men and women in various places in Scripture, but this would have been a complete surprise to the shepherds, would it not? Have you ever put an address into your GPS only to have it take you down a completely wrong path. You know, in some cases, extreme cases, people have ended up on deserted roads in grave circumstances. I can imagine if these shepherds weren't so afraid, they, might, they may have said, you know, we think you may have punched the wrong address into your angelic GPS. You get the point. The angel was not lost. He knew exactly where he needed to be. He knew exactly who he needed to be uh, announcing this, this birth to. This truth is affirmed by the, by the same verse. Look at your third, at the third humble or heavenly circumstance. The heavenly sea or the heavenly light. Now, uh, look at the text in verse 9. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Again, what we see here, 
What we see is that the heavenly light. Now, last week I was told after the service that my alliteration here was a little bit of a stretch, and that's okay. It makes you remember it. If you don't understand, C is the symbol for the speed of light. E equals MC squared. I know I'm in here, but it's okay. I'll get over it. But notice it says that the, the glory of the Lord shone around them. In other words, they were bathed in inaccessible light. And Anselm of Canterbury says, Truly, Lord, this is the inaccessible light in which you dwell, for truly there is nothing else which can penetrate through it so that you might be discovered there. Here in America, we have our fireworks shows on the 4th of July. We love things that light up the night, do we not? Let's just say that this light show in a field near Bethlehem was one of the most amazing ever. As crazy as it sounds, the only spectators were a few shepherds and some common pasture animals. The shepherds were given a spectacular view that defies all explanation. I'm certain these men were never the same after this glorious event. Just think of of other examples of people coming in contact with the heavenly light of God's glory. Moses' face shined so brightly he had to wear a veil. Paul said the light that surrounded him when Christ appeared to him was brighter than the sun. Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration were terrified when they were encountered this heavenly light. It was truly a traumatic experience, yet a spectacular one that defies explanation. These, this is what these lowly shepherds experienced. Now let's quickly look again at our fourth humble or, humble or heavenly circumstance, the humble communication. It says, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there was born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Quite simply, the angel communicated that he had good news that would bring great joy. This, this message, the gospel, would be presented to the people of Israel. Their long-awaited Messiah had finally come. This was truly good news which would bring great joy. This gospel that, that, he, would, that he would bring would ultimately be for all the peoples. Most of us here in this room are Gentiles who have heard who have heard this good news of the gospel. As the, as the church, we're commanded to take this good news of the gospel to the nations. But here, here's the most amazing thing when you think about Israel and the situation. This baby was the Messiah, but he wasn't a political Messiah. He wasn't a man, merely, merely a man like us. Look at your text. He was, he is Christ the Lord. He's a divine Messiah. As we said earlier, He is fully God and, and fully man. Son of God and Son of Man, the Savior of the world. John four forty two. 42. Uh, the, the people of the city told the woman at the well, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's look at the fifth point, the humble circumstance itself. Look at your text in verse 12. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. 
Now we saw this in verse 7, right? I mean, it, the, we saw that Mary had, had done this. And incredibly, the sign that the angel gives is, a, is an incredibly simple one. These shepherds would find a baby, and in very many ways, he was an ordinary baby. He was a baby like we were. The writer of Hebrews states in Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting for him, for whom all are all things, and through him whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of, our, of their salvation through sufferings. What he's saying is, is that he has experienced everything that we've experienced. Again, he states in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are yet without sin. In other words, Jesus experienced life like we experienced life. He was conceived in miraculous fashion. He was born of the virgin, yet his birth was in other ways just an ordinary birth. He went through childhood just like us. Yet in Luke 2.52, it says that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. You see, Jesus experienced temptations like we do, actually far beyond what we do, but he did so without sin. Yes, he was an ordinary baby, lying in the manger, but he was so much more. There was, there's a devotional plan my wife read through the holidays published by Moody Publishers where you, you can find it on U, the YouVersion app. It captures the humanity of Jesus from, from Joseph's perspective. Just listen to this. As Joseph watches his baby boy cling to his mother for his first meal, God the Father sees his last meal of bread and wine, symbols of a broken body for a broken world. As Joseph holds the infant Jesus' hands for the first time, tracing the lines, gently holding them, loving them, God the Father sees the time to come when the same hands are violently nailed to a wooden cross. As Joseph repeats his name over and over, singing Jesus, a name that means he who saves, God the Father is the only one in the room who truly knows what that means. End quote. Now, as beautiful as that sentiment is, I would change the last statement to say God was the only one in the room who truly knew the full extent of what the incarnation meant. You've heard the song, Christmas song, Mary, Did You Know? The last verse says, Mary, did you know that your baby boy is the Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? The sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. Now here's my answer to those questions. Mary knew a whole lot. She understood more than you might think. Just read through her Magnificat in Luke 1, 46-55. She understood, she understood more than you might think from the Old Testament. Uh, the this Mary song, I'll call it, is filled with Old Testament allusions and quotations. It clearly shows us that Mary's heart and mind were saturated with Old Testament Scripture. The entire song is a point-by-point recitation of God's covenant promises found in the Old Testament. 
But she would have also known Isaiah 53, where the prophet spoke of the suffering servant. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. She would have studied uh, Psalm 22, 6 and 7, which looked forward to the horrors of the cross. Just listen, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, the point is, the point is, Mary may not have grasped everything, but she did know what the Scripture said about her baby boy. She knew that he would suffer. She may not have understood every circumstance, but she knew every detail of his birth had unfathomable significance. And she sat there in that place. And she realized that God had kept his promises in sending his son. She knew that he was consigned to this place so that we could be raised from here. Jerome states, He found no room in the Holy of Holies that shone with gold, precious stones, pure silk, and silver. He is not born in the midst of gold and riches, but in the midst of dung. He goes on to say, In a stable where our sins were filthier than the dung. He was born on a dung hill into, in, order, in order to lift up those who come from it. I want to make one clarification about Jesus' place of birth. We've referred to, it has been referred to as a stable. Some may think it was a cave, or some think it was a cave. In reality, in reality, it was probably the lower portion of a house. The houses in Jesus' time, some of them had two levels. It's been shown uh, from an archaeological point of view. It's been shown that they had two levels. The top level was normally where the, the guest stayed, or the upper, the upper level. The Greek word for in could be translated to refer to this upper area. So there was no room in the upper guest area. So Mary and Joseph and, and Jesus were relegated to this lower area. Now, during the night, the family probably brought the, their livestock into the lower area for protection. So Joseph and Mary most likely spent the night in that lower area. And so therefore, Jesus was most likely delivered there among the family's livestock. He was then laid in a manger or feeding trough for those animals. Without a doubt, this baby was wrapped in cloths and he was laid in a manger. And this was an incredible picture of humility. Just listen to Bernard of Clairvaux as he describes the, the incredible scene. The infant Jesus was silent. He does not extol himself. He does not proclaim his own power and greatness. And behold, an, an angel announces his birth. A multitude of the heavenly hosts praise and glorify the, new, the newborn king. You that would follow Christ in, the, in like manner imitate his example. End quote. The point that he's making, obviously is that this is a humble birth. It wasn't a birth that, was, that was, had this external trappings of power. 
An angel announced his birth to some shepherds in a field. We should follow him in like manner. We should imitate that example of humility. Now let's look at the heavenly congregation. Look back at your text in Luke 2.13. And, and suddenly there appeared with, a, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Now, let me stop there. Let's put it this way. As we said earlier, this group of humble shepherds were treated to the greatest light show and now are going to be treated to the greatest heavenly choir ever. It's as if the first act of the show was in verse 9 when the angel appeared to the shepherds and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And now just imagine the, the curtain rising to reveal the heavenly choir of angels. It's an amazing sight. And if you're honest, you'll say you can't, you can't imagine it. Because this show was incompre- incomprehensible. At least one commentator has said that the heavenly, every heavenly angel must have joined this magnificent congregation of angels. Uh, the, the idea of, of the word multitude is, is a great many. I'm, I'm certain that the number is incomprehensible to the human mind. When I was in high school, my choir class went to a local university to join with other choirs to sing with an orchestra. It was by far the largest choir I had sung with until I went to sing with the TMS men at the Shepherds Conference. I think that might have been bigger, but I'll never forget this back in high school. I'll never forget showing up early in the morning, practicing all day, and then we performed for the local community that night. The performance was unforgettable for a young country boy like me. But as memorable as that was for me, I can only imagine what the shepherds saw and their story. I'm sure they told their kids and their grandkids and anyone who would listen. Look down at verse 18. All who heard it wondered at these things which were told them by the shepherds. And again in verse 20, the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen just as it had been told them. Now, Now that I put this word picture of a heavenly choir in your minds, I want to correct something else. I corrected the 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 manger and the the what was going on there. Let me make another quick quick correction. I think I think this will give you a better understanding of what the shepherds may have seen. The Greek word translated multitude or company as the idea of a military unit or army. Now you can imagine. This army is unimaginably, well, you can't, probably can't imagine, but it's unimaginably large. But, it, but if it has the idea of an army, it's, it, it has the idea of being regimented and assembled for the sole purpose of praising God. Just imagine a, a military procession. But in this case, it's assembled in the praise of, a, of the king. Now, it's funny, I, I know that many folks don't like church in straight rows, and they loathe pews. Now, I would, I would stop short of arguing for them on this basis, but I am convinced, I am convinced that God loves orderliness. He loves orderliness. In any case, these shepherds must have been blown away by what they saw and heard. Again, we can only imagine because because Luke doesn't give us much more detail than this. Let's look at the next circumstance. 
the heavenly communique. Look at your text in 2.14. The angels were saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. The, the angels, these angels, these regimented angels, were doing what they always do. They were praising God. The text says, Glory to God in the highest. This probably means glory to God in the highest heaven. Again, I'm reminded of the angels in Isaiah 6, 2, and 3. Uh, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And another call, one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's a similar scene recorded by John in Revelation 19.4, or sorry, Revelation 4.8. And four living creatures, each of them having six wings, and are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Look back at your text. In Luke 2.14, they were saying, Glory to God, in the highest, and on earth, peace among men with whom He is pleased. Now, I want you to notice that the angelic song celebrates two sovereign works of God. Heaven and earth. The, the, the God who is to be praised in the highest heaven has brought peace on earth with the birth of His Son. Now, if you've got the NASB, as I do, the, this verse is translated peace among men with whom he is pleased. The ESV says something very similar, but the King James Version says glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. That's a very familiar translation, is it not? Now I think the NAS is actually correct in its translation. This is not to be taken as a universal declaration of peace, although the birth of Christ will ultimately lead to peace between God and man. In the words of John MacArthur, peace with God is a corollary of justification. In other words, peace with God is the result of justification. Paul makes this argument in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think Charles Spurgeon captures this incredible truth and its implications. He says, When the bells, are, the bells ringing out at Christmas, when you hear the bells ringing out at Christmas, think of the reason why Jesus was born. Dream not that He came to load your tables and fill your cups, but in your mirth look higher than all earth-born things. When you hear that in certain churches there are pompous celebrations and eclipses, ecclesiastical displays, think not for this purpose that Jesus was born. No, look within your hearts and say, for this purpose He was born, that He might be King, that He might rule through the truth in the souls of people who are by grace made to love the truth of God. End quote. Now last week I ended the sermon with Philippians 2, 1-11. I've decided to do something a little different today. A little differently, that is. I want to leave you with two other humble yet heavenly contemplations from two brothers in Christ, the late J.C. Ryle, Bishop J.C. Ryle, and again, Charles Spurgeon. I don't think that I can say it any better than they do. I'm certain of that. 
In the words of, again, Charles Spurgeon, as Jesus Christ is a child in His human nature, He, was, he is born, begotten of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, Mary. He is as truly born as certainly a child as any other man that ever lived upon the face of the earth. He is thus in His humanity a child born. But as Jesus Christ is God's Son, He is not born, but given, begotten of His Father from, all, from before all worlds, begotten, not made, being of the same substance with the Father. End quote. I think that's an incredible quote that brings to mind and helps us understand that while He was born, that was not His beginning. It's not His beginning. He wasn't made, but he was of the same substance with the Father. We'll finish with Bishop Ryle and the Apostles John and Paul. Our divine Savior really took human nature upon him in order to save sinners. He really became a man like ourselves in all things, sin only accepted. Like ourselves, he was born of a woman though born in a miraculous manner. Like ourselves, he grew from infancy to boyhood, and from boyhood to man's estate, both in wisdom and in stature. Like ourselves, he hungered, thirsted, ate, drank, slept, was wearied, felt pain, wept, rejoiced, marveled, was moved to anger and compassion. Having become flesh and taken a body, he prayed read the Scriptures, suffered being tempted, and submitted His human will to the will of God the Father. And finally, in the same body, He really suffered and shed His blood. He really died and was really buried and really rose again and really ascended into heaven. And yet all this time, He was God as well as man. End quote. As we close out this Christmas season, and as I close out this sermon, I want to end with where I started or where we started last week. I want us to contemplate the magnificent truth of the Incarnation by listening to the same verses we started out last week with. Just listen. We read in John 1, Listen along. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of, the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from John whose name sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he 
gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Listen to this carefully. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, Paul writes, again, we've read this on a couple of different occasions. Paul writes in Philippians, Philippians 2. I want to start from the first verse because I want us to understand the context. You see, Paul is addressing unity in the body. He's addressing how to be unified by being humble. And he uses Christ as an example of this humility. Now, I've titled the sermon, A Savior is Born, The Humility of Christmas. So as I read through this, I want you to be thinking and meditating on the truth of what is here. Paul writes, starting in verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now let me stop right there. We've said over and over, we've, we've pointed to the humility the humility of, of Christ's birth. The fact that He came and he, he came in the, the fashion that He did. He could, have, he could have appeared, He could have come to, to Jerusalem where all the, the haves were. But He, he came to the have-nots. And unless, unless we, we think, think that we're the haves, we need, need to be the, the have-nots. Does that, that make sense? sense? Even if we have things, we need to act as though we, our heart needs to be that we have not. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God the thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Church, it's the point of Christmas. It's the point of Christmas. His birth would have been meaningless. It would have been, would not have had any effect 
had he not gone to the cross. Had he not gone to the cross. Had he not died on that cross. Paul says that his blood, he shed his blood for the redemption of our sins, for our redemption to, to, to buy us back. I've said it before when I was preaching through Ephesians. We, we are in the slave market of sin. We are slaves to our sin. And yet Christ and His blood, the blood of the cross, has redeemed us. It set us free. It set us free. Now we are, if you are in Christ... We're in Him. The most wonderful truth of Scripture is that we're in Him now. Verse 9. For this reason. What reason, Paul? Well, because He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also... God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. So that the name, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Remember the angel said to the shepherds, He's Christ the Lord. Well, Paul is saying that. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, confess that that babe in the manger, the babe in the manger, the one wrapped in cloths, the one laid in the manger, is none other than Jesus Christ, the Lord. The Lord. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you're sitting here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, this may all sound foolishness to you. Paul even says, 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. This may sound like foolishness to you. God became man. God went to the cross. Yet, it's the power of God power of God. It's the wisdom of God. I pray that if you don't know Him, <clears throat> if you don't know Him, if you haven't put your faith in Christ and confessed Christ and, and believed in His resurrection from the dead, I pray you will do so right now. I pray, I beg you, don't let this day go by. Don't let this day go by before you turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus. There's so much more than a baby in a manger. A baby in a manger will come again. If you're here today and you know Him and you love Him, you look forward to that day. But if you're here today and you don't know Him, you need to fear. You need to fear. 
Because he's coming in judgment. He's coming in judgment. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again. Lord, I pray as we try to fathom the full import, the full consequence of what we have taught even today. I'm overcome. Overcome. Yet, Lord, your will be done. I pray for those who don't know you this day. Pray that they would turn to you. I pray, Lord, for those who do, that they would take up their cross and follow you. That they would understand that true freedom, true liberation is found only in the cross. We thank you and praise you this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Let the world, let the